0: Chapter 3, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie, Chapter 3, Part 2. Cities and Towns. A unique man resides in Milwaukee, one so closely identified with its wonderful growth that he is thought of whenever that city is mentioned. Alexander Mitchell, who left Aberdeen, a young Scotch lad, some fifty years ago, he has one proud distinction of which he can never be deprived, for it can scarcely ever be expected in the history of the race that any development of material resources can equal that of the American railway system. Alexander Mitchell has built more miles of railway than any man who has lived, is living, or who is ever to live. He began the work at Milwaukee as president of the Milwaukee and St. Paul Railway, a position which he still holds. It is scarcely necessary to add that the said Mitchell has not failed to hold on to a fair proportion of this gigantic property, for it has been noted that he is Scotch. When we reached Chicago with our Scotch guests two years ago, we found his special car, a much grander hotel than any saloon carriage waiting there subject to our orders. The conductor said his instructions were to go where we wished, stop and start on any train desired, and when we were done with him, he was to return with his car to Milwaukee. We spent days in that car, visited St. Paul in the north and Davenport in the west, and did not traverse one mile of line which that scotch boy had not built and over which his word was not law scotland forever mr mitchell is one of the dozen richest men in the world a credit to aberdeen a credit to his native scotland a credit to his adopted america a grand republican he is too staunch as aberdeen granite there No royal family or hereditary legislators for him, mind you. He is not the stuff out of which a loyal subject to another human being can be made, or if made, not the man to occupy that degrading position long. He holds himself as man the equal of any monarch, a man whom all men honor. The adjoining state of Minnesota contained in 1880 about 800,000 people, of which 88,000 resided in the capital, St. Paul, and its twin sister town, Minneapolis. In 1885, the state population had increased to 1,100,000, 43% in five years. Greatest wonder of all, however, is the five years' growth of the city of Minneapolis. In 1880, its population was 47,000. In 1885, 130,000, a gain of over 176%. St. Paul increased from 41,000 to 111,000 a gain of 168%. Yet in 1848, this region was a wilderness, the entire territory, nearly twice the size of the present state, having only about 3,000 inhabitants. A trading house was built on the site of St. Paul in 1842, and round it, gradually grew a small community of whites and half-breeds engaged in barter with the Indians and trappers. In 1850, the population numbered 1,135. To quote the words of a writer of that period, St. Paul is in the wilderness. Look where you will, the primitive features of the surrounding country remain unchanged, and the wild animals and Indians still haunt the grounds to which ages of occupancy have given them a prescriptive right. A few miles away, a group of houses might have been seen clustering around the falls of St. Anthony. There, in 1848, a sawmill was put in operation by the aid of a temporary dam built across the east channel of the river. As the forests fell before the lumberman's axe and emigrant farmers brought in the plow, flowering mills were built at the falls and Minneapolis emerged from the country-village state. Checked in their growth by the war in 1861, and, more seriously, by the Sioux Massacre of 1862, Minneapolis and St. Paul experienced renewed prosperity in 1864 and 1865. And since then, the two towns have gone forward, marching across the dividing forest to meet each other, and will eventually mingle their suburbs, and form a city a dozen miles across with a population of a million souls. The child is living who will see all this and more. As we have Alexander Mitchell dominating Milwaukee, so no one can think of Minneapolis without recalling that notable family, the Washburn brothers their career is typically American. These Washburns are a family indeed, seven sons, all of them men of Mark. Several have distinguished themselves so greatly as to become part of their country's history. The family record includes a Secretary of State, two governors, four members of Congress, a Major General in the Army, and another second-in-command in in the Navy. Two served as foreign ministers, two were state legislators, and one a surveyor-general. As all these services were performed during the Civil War, there were washburns in nearly every department of the state, laboring in camp and council for the Republic at the sacrifice of great personal interests. All came forth from peaceful avocations to serve their country as their first duty. The Union saved, they are found today pursuing their industrial occupations as of old. The nation having no enemies to conquer, they turn their energies to the work of feeding it. Is not this turning the sword into the plowshare and the spear into the pruning hook? let the nation be endangered or an emergency arise where in the judgment and conscience of such men they can perform a greater use in public than in private life and they are once more upon the stage of action the republic has such citizens by thousands and yet the privileged classes of europe assiduously spread the belief among the masses abroad that the republic lacks pure and distinguished noblemen to guide her councils. Believe me, fellow citizens, no nation upon earth has such wealth of patriotism, men with such power to conceive or such ability to execute, as rests quietly in reserve, but ever ready for emergencies, in this democracy. It is this reserve force which has kept the Republic steadily upon her course. It votes or fights as may be necessary, and never shirks a duty. When the ship of state is in smooth waters, more important matters require its attention, and the governing power goes below. But mark you, when the wind blows, this captain walks the deck. THE REPUBLIC HAS NEVER BEEN ALLOWED TO SAIL FAR OUT OF THE TRUE COURSE AND NEVER WILL BE. TOO MUCH SCIENCE ON BOARD, AND TOO MANY INDEPENDENT OBSERVATIONS TAKEN AND COMPARED IN THE FULL BLAZE OF THE SUN, NOT TO FIND THE TRUE RECKONING AND FOLLOW IT CLOSELY, steadily TO THE DESIRED HAVEN. This reserve was seen forcibly during the four years during which the Union was imperiled. When a leader was needed, one was found in an attorney's office in Illinois, a great heaven-born leader, Lincoln. When foreign relations were necessarily dangerous in the extreme, and even our mother country stood threatening, Seward proved himself a diplomatist of the First Order. For secretary of war, a genius was taken from the practice of the law in Pittsburgh. No man, since the days of Carnot, has waged war as did Stanton. The armies will move now, said a friend when his appointment was announced, if they move to the devil. I knew Stanton well, a Cromwell kind of man, He walked straight to his end, either to triumph or to die. His life he could give, and would give, that the nation should live. That was his duty. Victory might come, or defeat, that was not his affair. When generals to lead the armies were sought for, the great leader came from a tannery in Galena, the second from teaching in a college. All these were from peaceful occupations, and every one of these men resigned power, poor men. The families of several of them were provided for by private subscriptions among friends. Politics are but means to an end. When the laws of a country are perfect and the equality of the citizen reached, there is far more important work to be performed at home than in legislative halls. Hence the ablest and best men in the Republic are not, as a class, found trifling their time away, doing the work of mediocrity. But let great issues rise and see who comes to the front, a body of men superior to any found elsewhere in the world. Already, Minneapolis is the greatest wheat market in the West, and unlike other large receiving points, four-fifths of all wheat received there is manufactured into flour before shipment. Last year, one and a quarter million bushels were often received in a single week. The total receipts of 1884 were nearly three times as great as those of 1880, aggregating 29 million bushels. The milling trade has also increased at a prodigious rate. One-fifth of all the flour exported from the United States is sent direct from Minneapolis on through bills of lading. The capacity of the mills is over 30,000 barrels per day, and one of the Washburn mills alone has made over 7,000 barrels of flour in one day. Five and a quarter million barrels were manufactured last year, five times the output of 1876. Surely no worthy second of this can be found elsewhere. Yet Flowering is not the only industry of this youthful giant. 300 million feet of lumber were cut by the mills last year, besides 136 million lath and shingles. Minneapolis justifiably boasts that she is a city of mechanics. Her manufactures exceeded 12 millions sterling in 1884, while her trade exclusive of flour and lumber, reached almost an equal sum. The total receipts and shipments of Minneapolis in the year 1884 comprised 246,985 carloads. A local statistician has reckoned that if all these cars were made up into trains of 20 cars each, they would make 12,347 trains, requiring that number of engines to move them. If cars and engines were continuously coupled together, they would make a train 1,700 miles in length. Or, if made into four trains, each train would reach from Minneapolis to Chicago or the line of freight cars would be sufficient to completely fence in England and Scotland and then form a wall across the middle of the country at its widest part. Some idea of the enormous amount of flour manufactured by the mills of Minneapolis can be obtained if we estimate it at the rate of 250 loaves of bread to the barrel which would give us 25 loaves for each of the 56 million people of the United States. If the flour made by Minneapolis in one year were put into barrels and these set end-to-end and roped together, it would make a pontoon bridge from New York to Ireland. A similar phenomenal growth is going on in another region, in 1870, only fifteen years ago, except Superior and Duluth, the former a straggling little hamlet, and the other, laid out on speculation in the woods on the lake shore, there was not a town, village, or hamlet westward on or near the line marked out for the Northern Pacific Railroad for more than a thousand miles. Between the head of the lake and the mining camps among the Rocky Mountains in Montana, no abodes of civilized men existed, save two or three military posts and Indian agencies and a few isolated trading stations. Northern Minnesota was a forest into which even the lumbermen had not yet penetrated, save for a few miles back of Lake Superior. At present, the whole line of the railway is dotted with thriving towns. The town laid out on speculation in the woods is deserving of a moment's attention. Duluth, even in the embryonic state, displayed a precocity that brought upon it the ridicule of a famous order. With scathing sarcasm, but unconscious prophecy, He dubbed it the Zenith City of the Unsalted Seas. There is a scream from the American Eagle for you, but is it not poetic? The juvenile city is now the terminus of 10,000 miles of railway. Its receipts of wheat for 1884 approached 14 million bushels. Sawmills, are getting almost as plentiful as blackberries, and in a single year they cut 205 million feet of lumber, besides 85 million lath and shingles. The clearances show that 700 steamers and nearly 600 sailcraft arrived at Duluth in 1884. Banking transactions amounted to $34 million a year. Storage capacity for grain is nearly 10 million bushels. Lastly, the population of this magic city has bounded from 2,500 in 1875 to 18,000 in 1884. Was ever the like known except in the triumphant republic? Indianapolis with its present population of 90,000 inhabitants, has also a history which the oldest inhabitant can recite from personal experience. Practically, its history as a city dates from the opening of the Madison Railway in 1847. Before that date, it was but a small country town, So isolated that its trade was compared to that of the two boys who, when locked up in a closet, made money by swapping jackets. The slowness of its growth before the advent of the railway is shown by the following facts extracted from Holloway's local history. The town was laid out in 1821. Ten years later, three-fourths of the town site remained unsold. The legislature managed to get rid of most of the lots by putting a minimum price of $10 upon them. And when the sales were closed in 1842, it was found that the whole of Indianapolis had brought but $125,000, 25,000 pounds, The city thus sold out was but a forest, except where a clearing here and there had opened the ground to the light. To get the streets cleared, it was proposed to give the timber to anybody who would cut it. A man by the name of Lismond Bazier took the contract for Washington Street, expecting to make a good thing of such a superb lot of timber trees and then began to calculate there were no mills and his trees were of no use without them so he rolled his splendid logs together and burned them as well as his fingers the street thus opened a hundred and twenty feet wide is now lined with fine buildings and a single block on this handsome thoroughfare would now fetch more than the sum for which the whole city was originally sold. Indianapolis has claims to be considered one of the greatest railway centers in the world. Fourteen railways center there, and about a 120 passenger trains pass in and out of the city every day. Kansas City is another example of Western phenomenal growths. 30 years ago, 1855, its population was 300. In 15 years, 1870, it had increased more than a hundredfold to 32,000. By 1880, it had again doubled to 63,000 and at the time of writing, it is about 125000 The assessed valuation of property has increased from $500,000, 100,000 pounds, in 1846, to $34,000,000, 6,800,000 pounds, in 1884. The exchanges, as shown by the returns of the city clearinghouse, have advanced from $20 million, 4 million pounds, in 1875, to $177 million, nearly 36 million pounds, in 1884. The business of the post office increased during the same period five-fold. About 24 million bushels of grain were received in 1884, against one million bushels in 1871 one and a quarter million hogs are annually turned into pork about a fourth of monster chicago's herd and fifteen hundred cattle are also weekly shipped as provisions the trade in livestock is also very great nearly two and a half million cattle hogs sheep horses and mules Pass through its markets, a procession five abreast that would reach from Inverness to London. Numerous other examples might be cited. Allegheny City, an offshoot of Pittsburgh, has grown from a village of 2,800 inhabitants in 1830 to a city of 79,000 in 1880 while the population of Pittsburgh itself increased during the same period from 12,000 to 156,000. Buffalo, during the same 50 years, advanced from 80,000 to 155,000 inhabitants. Philadelphia increased from 80,000 to nearly 850,000 Cincinnati from 24,000 to 255,000. Detroit from 2,000 to 116,000. Rochester from 15 persons in 1812 to 89,000 in 1880. Toledo from 1222 in 1840 to 50,000 in 1880. Scranton from 363 in 1840 to 46,000 in 1880. Of the growth of these towns, we have an excellent picture in the following paragraphs. The first from the pen of Captain Basil Hall, the best-hated Englishman in America some 50 years ago, and the second by the Norwegian Arfidsen descriptive of Columbus, Georgia. Quote, The first thing to which our attention was called was a long line cut through the coppice wood of oaks. This, our guide begged us to observe, was to be the principal street, and the brushwood having been cut away so as to leave a lane four feet wide with small stakes driven in at intervals we could walk along it easily enough. On reaching the middle point, our friend, looking around him, exclaimed in rapture at the prospect of the future greatness of Columbus, Here you are, in the center of the city. After threading our way for some time amongst the trees, we came in sight, here and there, of huts, partly of planks, Partly of bark, and at last reached the principal cluster of houses, very few of which were above two or three weeks old. As none of the city lots were yet sold, of course, no one was sure that the spot on which he had pitched his house would eventually become his own. Many of the houses were, in consequence of this understanding, built on trucks, a sort of low, strong wheels, such as cannon are supported by, for the avowed purpose of being hauled away when the land should be sold. At some parts of this strange scene, the forest was growing as densely as ever, and even in the most cleared streets some trees were left standing. As yet, there had been no time to remove the stumps of the felled trees, and many that had been felled were left in their places, so that it was occasionally no easy matter to get along. Anvils were heard ringing away merrily at every corner, while saws, axes, and hammers were seen flashing amongst the woods all around." Columbus, in 1832, only four years later. Quote, it may already be called a flourishing town. The population exceeded 2,000, and among them were several that might be denominated wealthy. The number of inhabitants is augmenting monthly, and the increase of commerce, I was assured, was in the same proportions. Carpenters, masons, and workmen of every kind were never without employment, and could not erect houses fast enough. Streets which in 1828 were only marked out were now so filled with loaded wagons that it was next to impossible to pass. The principal street which traverses the city, following the course of the river, is, like the rest, not paved, but has so many shops filled with a variety of goods, such a number of neat houses, and finally, in the mornings, such a concourse of people, Christians and Indians, that it can hardly be believed that it is the same street which was only marked out in 1828. Most of the houses are of wood and some of brick, a few in the English style, others again in the Grecian taste. Unquote. If we compare the preceding accounts of the rise and progress of recently established cities with the slow movements of old Boston, the contrast is great indeed. Boston was first settled in 1630. Fifty years later, the first fire engine was procured and the first fire company organized, a sign of progress attained by a modern town in as many weeks. In 1704 appeared the Boston Newsletter, the first newspaper ever published in the British colonies of North America. Now the printing press is set up almost in the first plank house erected, and a town of a few miners must have its own newspaper. In 1710, eighty years after the settlement of the town, a post office was established, and mails were forwarded once a week to Plymouth and to Maine, and once a fortnight to New York. In 1786, the citizens undertook their first great enterprise and constructed a bridge over the Charles River, so that Boston required 150 years to attain a position which is now often reached by modern towns of the prairies in as many months. Examples without number of phenomenal growth of cities and towns might be cited, for the line stretches on, one seemingly miraculous, till the other comes. From east to west, from north to south, up and down and across the map of the Republic, the student may pass in imaginative flight, sure of meeting everywhere these cities and towns which springing up like mushrooms have nevertheless taken root like the oak a beautiful tribute to the motherland is found in the names of towns and cities in the new as even on the crowded tiny mayflower the stern puritan found room to bring AND NURSE WITH TENDER CARE THE DAISY OF HIS NATIVE LAND, SO THE CITIZEN, DRIVEN FROM THE DEAR OLD HOME, EVER SIGHS, ENGLAND, WITH ALL THY FAULTS, I LOVE THEE STILL. SURELY, WHY NOT? HER FAULTS ARE AS ONE, HER VIRTUES AS A THOUSAND, AND HAVING A NEW HOME TO christen, WITH SWELLING HEART AND TEARFUL EYE, and a love for the native land which knows no end, and never can no end, while breath clings to the body, he conjures up the object of his fondest love, and calls his new home Boston, York, Brighton, Hartford, Stratford, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Durham, Perth, Aberdeen, Dundee, Cambridge, Oxford, Canterbury, Rochester, London, Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham, Chester, Coventry, Plymouth, or other dear name of the place where in life's young days he had danced o'er the sunny braes, heard the lark sing in the heavens, and the Mavis pour forth its glad song from the hedgerow. There is scarcely a place in the old land which has not its namesake in the new. Take Pittsburgh, which is itself named after the Great Pitt, and within a few miles radius, the English visitor can walk the streets of Soho, Birmingham, and Manchester. All these were suburban places a few years ago, and now they are as crowded as their prototypes brighton rochester newport middlesex newcastle are only a few miles away this love of the old household words is carried even farther the englishman travels through the republic living in a succession of hotels victoria's clarendon's windsor's westminster's albemarle's He might think himself at home again, except that the superior advantages of the new hostelries serve to remind him at every turn that things are not as he has been accustomed to, so that our household gods are not only the same in the new as in the old land, but we call them by the same names and love them. The exile's heart is always sad when he thinks of the one spot of Mother Earth which alone can be in the deepest sense his home. Who then shall keep apart the land of his home and the land of his domicile? And what American worthy of the name but shall reverence the home of his fathers and wish it Godspeed? When the people reign in the old home, as they do in the new, the two nations will be one people, and the bonds which unite them, the world combined, shall not break asunder. The Republican, upon this side of the Atlantic, extends his hand to his fellow upon the other. They clasp hands. Democracy cries to democracy. We stand for the rights of man. The day of kings and peers is past. Down, privilege down. Ring in the reign of the people, the equality of the citizen. No peal so grand as that, save one, that which proclaims the substitution of peaceful arbitration for war the world over. And that, too, is involved in republicanism. All parties in the Republic already stand pledged to the doctrine. Patience, my fellow citizens, patience. Democracy goes marching on. The reign of the masses is the road to universal peace. Thrones and royal families and the influences necessarily surrounding them, the vile brood they breed, make twenty wars, while triumphant democracy makes one. End of part two, end of chapter three.